Yeah, on. Hey, really quick before we start, um, there's someone that we're going to reference in today's episode, and I want to officially start by dedicating uh, episode 28 to the memory of um, one of Nubs and I's most beloved old friends and a, a huge influence uh, to both of us well beyond his years, and that's TJ. Um, we haven't forgotten you, buddy. And never will. So I want to dedicate this episode to him. Dude. Dude. <laughs> yeah, dude. We're back, dude. <laughs> Dude. Welcome to Two Twins in an Album, episode 28. I'm here with my dude, Nubs. How you doing, buddy? See, I'm good. 2021 is, is rather young. It just feels good to have a new, even if everything else is still going straight to hell, it's at least good to, <laughs> to call it another year, isn't it? I think cosmetically, you know, there, there are a lot of people quite happy to see that 20 turn into a 21. It's kind of a nice feeling. I mean, we'll see how it all shakes out. It, it could end up being, you know, uh, Groundhog Day, you know, Ned Ryerson type, type material. But, uh, but I don't think so. I think we're going to keep plowing through this deal and we'll get to the point. As you said last week, you know, um, very nicely, I thought, at the end of our uh, 2020 in review, you know, live music and some of these things that, you know, are kind of more normal and things we love to do, I think are, are going to come back. So, well, it better because, you know, it, it, the eighties was the me decade. I think the 2020s <laughs> is the T decade. You know, <laughs> do you think, I think, I think what, I think people do need to stop thinking so much about themselves and start thinking more about me. That's exactly, exactly. People need to say, what can I do for tea this year? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I agree with that. (laughs) So one of the things that's really interesting about um, today's episode, particularly for our Michigander audience, and I know that, you know, we've got quite a few of those because obviously, you know, Nubs and I were born and raised here in southeastern Michigan. And, and I think everybody, to an extent, that grows up at least relatively close to a college town or a major market or whatever it may be, has a band that may or may not have broken through. You know, because certainly it's, we've learned that not just talent gets you to break through. You got to have luck. You got to have timing. It's, you know, it's all, all those things wrapped up into one. But anytime you have a band that, uh, you know, was a bit of a sort of local legend and then eventually made it big, it's always a really interesting concept for you as a fan, 
for those who saw the band as they were up and coming. You know, you hear that a lot with music lovers, kind of like, well, I saw so-and-so when they were playing in a little club and there were 20 people there and, you know, aren't I cool? You know, or, you know, I, I knew about so-and-so, you know, well before, you know, anyone else knew about him and all that. So if those people are super duper annoying, then be prepared for us to be really, really annoying for the next little while, because yeah. the Verve Pipe is a band that if you grew up as a nineties kid in Southeastern Michigan, and you kind of knew anything about the music scene, you knew about these guys. You knew about the Verve Pipe. You knew that there was a pretty good chance they were going places. And, and we'll talk through the history of this band a little bit because it really does hit home, you know, for us. And it really does, I think, hit home for a lot of Michiganders that grew up music lovers. And the band also has a really peculiar, interesting history that almost got to be more interesting after they made it than it was before. But there's sort of three phases to this band. There's the kind of early coming up. There's the mainstream success. And then there's phase three. I don't really have a name for. The fall, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Other than a phase that was really, I guess I'll just be sort of kind and say it was unique. So we'll kind of go through um, all three phases. But I think what we're going to really highlight on is the record Villains by the Verve Pipe, which was sort of, you know, I think one of the, the more well-known in some cases, more well-renowned, um, even though the band is commonly known for one song by many. It was a record that a lot of people really liked during that time period. And the history and aftermath of this mainstream success is kind of what makes these guys interesting. So, Yeah, long before everybody had a story about you know, the time they hung out with Jack White in a bar in downtown Detroit or whatever. <laughs> right, right. The story was... You know, I saw the Verve Pipe, you know, with five other people in this frat house and blah, blah, blah. And Brian Vanderark this and the freshman this and blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, it was kind of like the pre-White Stripes name drop of any Michigan music lover in the early to late 1990s. So, yeah, it'll be fun to dig into. And you're being very kind. It's certainly a unique story that the band has gone through. That's for sure. <laughs> well, before we get into that. Let's do our first of 2021 round and round. Let's go. Nubs, albums, listening to, on the radar. What do you got? Well, you know, I, so over the holiday break, I, uh, Fam and I took a trip to Nashville, Tennessee. And one of the things I got to do that I haven't been able to do in however many months is go to a record store because all the record stores around here have been tough to navigate to and, and through. And so uh, did a little record shopping in old Nashville, Excellent. which is a good place to do it. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. And picked up uh, a few things that since have been spinning regularly. So the first is, is from an artist that I don't particularly love but an album that I really, really dig. And that is the album Volta by Bjork. This is the 2007 album. Hmm. I think the thing I like about it is one, number one, I saw her on this tour at the Fox theater in Detroit, which was very cool. It's not bucket list, but seeing Bjork is certainly experienced. So 
I remember that. And then um, this album features Timbaland collaborating with her on at least three of the tracks, which gives it a little bit more of a, dare you say, commercial sort of vibe to it. But Hey, does it feature Akon by any chance? Last week we talked a little bit about Akon. Is he on the record? He's not. He's not. Akon was probably, you know, 15 when this album came out, I guess. Fair enough. So, uh, I I, I say that like I didn't just learn who Akon was a week ago. (laughs) But uh, it's got Innocence, which I think is probably Bjork's best song. And that's one of the Timbaland songs. And so anyway, it's a really strong effort. And it's, if you're going to dig Bjork, it's, it's certainly, uh, I think the entry point because it's kind of the most tangible thing. I still think she's kind of a complete weirdo and everything, but, um, but it's, it volts as a really, really strong record for sure. Next would be a band that I, I'm sure I've mentioned before Saxon and the denim and leather album. You know, this is really good early eighties, uh, kind of new wave of British heavy metal type of sound metal. And, uh, Denim and Leather is probably Saxon's best album. I recommend checking it out. It's kind of like an ACDC sort of vibe, just strong guitar work and very riffy and really, really cool all around. And the last would be uh, the 1994 album from Queensryche, Promised Land. This is kind of the beginning of Queensryche starting to change its sound, which resulted in some of the most terrible work that the band did. But Promised Land, which is the follow-up to the great album Empire, um, is a really excellent album. It's got bridge, which is probably the best ballad the band did aside from silent lucidity. It's got disconnected. I am I just, you know, really, really good kind of prog metal stuff from Queensryche on promised land. And an album I really liked as a teenager and kind of dug back up and have been enjoying uh, in these recent times. So T that is what is round and round for me. Tell us all what is spinning round for you. The first is by this band called the Beach Boys, and uh, this uh, Beach album, of Boys, Beach of Boys, Beach of Boys, yes. And this album is called Concert. So this was early. This was back when they were doing the surf music, and um, it's a live record, and I love it. I love it. I love early Beach Boys. I love middle. I even like the later stuff, even when Brian kind of peeled off for a period of time. You know, I just think they're. Uh, they weren't the most focused band in the universe, um, but, you know, some really interesting, fascinating work. So if you're interested in kind of the energy of sort of early uh, Beach Boys, you know, concert is a uh, great way to go. Uh, the second is uh, a band we've talked about quite a bit, the uh, Deftones, and I've been kind of sampling through uh, you know, some of their various albums. And I just, I really like diamond eyes. I think that's one that, uh, probably don't go too long as far as, uh, getting and in, digging into Deftones catalog without giving diamond eyes a spin. I think it's really atmospheric and heavy, but also very, you know, interestingly layered. It's, I mean, the, every Deftones record you could spend, you know, and as we have spent a lot of time talking about the uh, sort of pros and cons of each, but I think Diamond Eyes is, uh, is really outstanding. Yeah, but uh, boy, did they catch fire or what in the mid-2000s? Like yeah. Saturday yeah. Night Wrist, Diamond Eyes, and Koinokan or whatever it's called. I mean, the, it was like, whoa, are these guys on fire? Yeah, yeah, no question. And then uh, the third is... I don't know, maybe a band that we'll talk about at some point, but certainly one of my favorites. And that is Saigon Kick. 
Jason Beeler actually has a solo album coming out uh, sometime in early 2021. So certainly excited to hear that. And I don't know, it's a band we may want to talk about at some point, but the album is Water. You know, this is the one that has that great opener with One Step Closer, uh, followed by the David Bowie cover Space Oddity, which is just a really, really great take on that song. And then sort of the upbeat uh, JME sort of Water title track. It's, it's a real nice start to a record that, you know, it fades a little bit in the back half, but, you know, Water, a really nice effort from Saigon Kick, which was their first record without Matt Kramer on vocals. So Jason really kind of took over the operation. and. One that's uh, great to listen to. And he continues to put out uh, music to this day, you know, through Bandcamp. And like I said, new record coming out, you know, soon. So uh, make sure to check that out. He's a incredibly talented guy, huge fan of Jason's and huge fan of Saigon Kick. So I guess we'll stay in that same decade of kind of early 90s. And we'll take you back to East Lansing, Michigan. Now, for those of you that don't know, East Lansing is the home of the Spartans, Michigan State University. Go green. You're supposed to say go white. All right, go white. All right, thank you. I mean, you get, <laughs> you're an Ohio State guy. I don't blame you for. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, but, uh, I'm Sparty friendly. Very. Yeah, sparty. yeah. No question. We're 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 both very, very Sparty friendly. Absolutely. No yep. And uh, and I don't know. Perhaps maybe part of the reason why we have a soft spot for Sparty and for East Lansing is you know it was really kind of the first time that we became directly um introduced to the verve pipe and you know we had a a buddy in uh in junior high school by the name of tj who um he was one of these guys that you know just he was a he was a college kid stuck in a you know 12 year old's body and it's part of the reason why we loved him so much and a lot of this went into musical taste. I mean, he was into the dad. He was into, you know, um, a, a lot of these bands, some you had heard of and some you hadn't that were more like what you'd expect to see in a 21 year olds, you know, turntable or collection or whatever it might be rather than a 12 year olds. And he really discovered this band first. He had an older sister, Laura, who's out there. Hopefully she'll hear this episode at some point. And, you know, she was always, she liked great music too. I remember one time like sneaking into her room and looking at her cassette. She had like the cure and, and all this like really good kind of new wave stuff. I was like, wow, these, these two really know what they're doing. She was like the consummate cool older sister. Oh God. You know, like, yeah, totally hot and super, super cool. And God, we were so obnoxious and she would just kind of tolerate slash laugh at us and with us and. I know one of the things that was always on your Christmas list that was never going to happen was an, an older sister. <laughs> yeah. You always wanted, right. And I think, I think Laura was a huge part of that. Because, yeah. You know, we, we sort of emulated this whole idea that TJ had this, this figure in his life that was cool and older and it brought her friends around and took him up for visits at yeah. college. And she was, you know, it was just, it's kind of cool the way that it all worked out. Yeah. She wouldn't bring her friends around. She'd bring her hot friends around. <laughs> well, well, when we were 13, 14, yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, any college girl during that time we yeah. were enamored with. In That's love fair. With. Yeah, That's fair. Sure. That's fair. So um, 
So, you know, I think a lot of that had to do with Laura, but, you know, TJ was just a guy who was constantly introducing us to various movies, TV clips, comedy pieces, and great music. You know, that was sort of ahead of its time had you not had a friend like that. And I remember he just became enamored, almost obsessed with this band, The Verve Pipe, who at that point had put out really two, I mean, one that was very recent at the time, but really two indie records um, that were, you know, making the rounds in Southeastern Michigan and very popular, but this was a regional college band. This was not a band that had made it anywhere, you know, and their first record was called, I suffered a head injury. Their second was called pop smear. Not to be confused with Pat smear. <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, this was a local band still. But it's important always the context. No YouTube, you know, right. none of this connectivity. Uh, you, you couldn't like send somebody the music over a phone or over email or something. I mean, he had to dig to find this band. And obviously the older sister thing helped, right? But this was almost his own little secret, you know, yeah. that he knew this band and yeah. And that he uh, and he eventually built a kind of a relationship with one of the band members, which was really cool, kind of a friendship, you know. Yeah, and it, which at the time was just like, I mean, for you and I, it was just the, like we thought that was so cool. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. it just didn't happen, you know, at this time. But, but yeah, he he kind of led us in on this on this secret, um, which kind of culminated with going to see the band in 1993. So I went to see him at the MSU Auditorium, I believe it was called. Is that right now? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, kind of an indoor, close next to the Breslin Center. I think it's the largest venue on campus. Yeah. At the time was probably the biggest venue the Verve Pipe had played. I would imagine that this was one of their biggest gigs. And I think TJ's mom, if I'm not mistaken, took us to that show. And it was the first time we had seen them. There were probably, I don't know, maybe 5,000 people at the show. Um, something like that. But um, it was the first time that we uh, saw this band live and it was very memorable. It was a huge deal. And, and, you know, this was right on the cusp of the band signing with RCA. I think they were either down to a couple finalists or they were, they were seriously being shopped. And healthy, if I remember right, the show might've even been a celebration of either they, that they had signed or they had agreed to a deal or something like that. But there was some connection between the show and the fact that the band had inked some sort of aspect of a major label deal. So yeah, it was a, it was a big accomplishment that they were playing this venue on campus in East Lansing. Yeah. You knew that they were close. You knew that they were about to bust it. They were about to break, but let's remember this is three years before the album that we're talking about tonight. Why don't we get to some of the, information because information is power isn't it nub about that record when we get into these nerdy deets thunder cheap you want some dirty deeds yeah. you want some dirty deeds villains was released on march 26th 1996 and for some it's certainly considered a debut certainly a major label debut for those that really followed the band. And I think you could consider us as certainly those, uh, those types um, around this time, because we owned, I suffered a head injury and we owned pop smear. And to us, this was 
major label, but it was kind of their third album. The way the Verve Pipe came together was really interesting. There are two brothers in the band, Brian Vander Ark and Brad Vander Ark, who were playing in, the, in a band called Johnny with an Eye. And there was a cat named Thomas Jensen, who is actually now a realtor in southeastern Michigan, one of the more popular, basically, you know, residential home realtors. Um, but at the time, he had founded in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is kind of on the west side of the state a recording studio called Station C. And he was actually recording some kind of early demo work from this band, Johnny with an Eye. He was also recording a band called Water for the Pool. How 90s are these band names, by the way? Um, Yeah, total 90s. (laughs) With a drummer by the name of Donnie Brown. So this Thomas Jensen is recording these two bands and kind of looking at the strengths and weaknesses of both. And at what point, one point he kind of pulls the Vanderark brothers into a room and says, you know where I think you guys can improve is with your percussion and drumming. And I'm recording this other band called Water for the Pool, and they have this really, really good tight drummer named Donnie Brown. You might want to give him a look. And Chanson kind of orchestrated this almost merger of these bands because Donnie and another member of Water for the Pool kind of joined the Vanderarks, and uh, they became the Verve Pipe. It's kind of a merger of these two bands that were not on purpose recording in the same studio. And this guy who owned the studio and was recording both kind of suggested that merging these two operations might be beneficial. And uh, so they have Thomas Jansen really to thank for the full formation of this band, because I do think that Donnie Brown's addition to the group was really important. I'm sure we'll talk more about it. I Suffered a Head Injury was kind of the first independent release for the band. All of the songs were written by the Vanderark Brothers, except for one, which was written by Donnie Brown, which was a Water for the Pool song, a song called Oceanside. What some people realize and some people don't is that this 1992 independent release debut for the Verve Pipe had a song on it called The Freshman. And it would become right away one of the more um, beloved tracks from the band. Now, it did not sound like the freshman that most people have come to know. In fact, we'll give you a little cut of it here. And you can kind of decide, for those of you that haven't heard this, if this had the makings of an eventual, you know, number one smash single. When I was young, I knew everything. And she, a punk who rarely ever took advice. Now I'm guilt-stricken, sobbing with my head on the floor. So it's a lot more up-tempo, obviously. I mean, it's a pretty bouncy song as far as tempo is concerned. And the entire song is just Brian and an acoustic guitar with some electric layering over it, which was probably also played by Brian. Here's the chorus. For the love of me, I cannot remember made us think that we were wise and we'd never compromise there may be a bass guitar in there too there's certainly some low end um but no drums pretty upbeat pretty bouncy um but this was a verve pipe favorite from the beginning in fact uh, tj was just completely obsessed with the freshman it was like (laughs) yeah it was like dude you gotta hear this song dude like this is like you know, one of the best songs ever written and, you know, but it was a song where you, you learned the words, you learned it. They, they played it, you know, at the show we were at, at the uh, MSU, you know, arena. And 
and you know everyone sang along i mean it was definitely a local hit and a very beloved song this is four years before most people outside of the college rock scene in southeastern michigan you know heard this song do you have any memories of the original version of the freshman nub you know there are uh 90s music fans all over the state of michigan who swear that they like the original version of the freshman better than the one on villains right and uh so you know for me i remember them playing it at the show i remember tj just being head over heels in love with the song. And probably the biggest thing I remember is not really caring much for the song. And I remember TJ and I would get in these long, endless debates over <laughs> why the freshman is the worst song in the album and why acting as your slave is much better. You know, yeah, that um, is a good one. It is. And I, I, I just didn't really care for it. Um, it wasn't really my cup of tea, you know, pun intended. Because number one, it was buried. Ah, I see what you did there. You like that? Yeah. Oh yeah, buddy. It was, it was buried at the end of the album. They always played it last at the show or at least part of the encore. So the time we saw him at MSU, I remember he came out and, uh, you know, played it essentially by himself. And I, I just thought it was kind of a boring song. I, I, I knew it had hit potential for sure. I mean, it, the commercial potential of the song was obvious. I, I think for those of us that knew of the band, you know, years before Villains came out, there was a shock value to when I first heard this new version of it. Oh, yes. You know, it was like, Big time. whoa, Big time. holy shit, did they produce this? Yeah. And then eventually you find out who they worked with on it and you're like, okay, like that, that, that makes sense. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think just initially it was obviously how enamored TJ was with it. But th- th- when we went to that show, I mean, th- the song, was a huge favorite of this rather small following that the band had amassed compared to what it would become, which is, you know, the band's most famous song and the thing that would make villains go on to sell, you know, a million plus copies. Well, you make a great point and and we should touch on Jerry Harrison who, you know, recorded and produced uh, throwing copper by live uh, some really good records by a cool band called Creeper Lagoon. Uh, God Shuffled His Feet by Crash Test Dummies. Some really well-produced albums. And the thing I always notice about Jerry Harrison is he was really able to customize production to who he was recording. This was not a guy who, you know, you, you make the football coach analogy that sort of had a system and had to like recruit players that fit that system. He could go to any different band and kind of say, what do I got here? And what are they going for here? Because the production on throwing copper is really not similar to villains and not similar to crash test dummies. They each kind of have their own unique take on things, you know, uh, throwing copper is a little bit more hollow in its production, right? A little bit less layered, a little bit more stripped down. Crash Test Dummies record, very layered, a lot of instrumentation. Villains, pretty damn layered, you know, and, and a lot of production and a lot of, you know, I think taking songs that maybe didn't have a lot of dynamics sort of in their main frame and creating some dynamics out of them. So I think, I think they partner with the right producer for this. I, I thought the Jerry Harrison pick was perfect, you know, and I don't know whether it was the band that chose it or RCA or how that partnership worked out. But, you know, I think a very smart decision. And I think the, 
the results of villains prove that this partnership was really important. The Verve Pipe needed a producer. You know, as valiantly as they performed on those first two indie albums, I mean, they desperately needed a producer to make them sound like a top 40 type of band and, and get them into the commercial, you know, scene. You know, Jerry Harrison was important, but the freshman really was the result of Jack Joseph Puig, who is such a central figure in music in the last 30 plus years. I mean, you talk about one of those guys that behind the scenes has, you know, created hits and whether it's through mastering or through A&R or production, that's a guy that if you want to hit, you go to. And so again, what RCA did at some point was line up the band or Brian Vanderark or however, whoever was involved with Jack Joseph Puig and said, Hey, we've got this song. It's really raw. What can we do with it? And he's given a, an arranger credit. When you hear the original version and you hear the version on villains and you hear all that instrumentation and the tempo change and all the things that clearly were not part of the original vision, you have to think that Jack Joseph Puig was like the dude at the controls for the freshman and the guy who made that all happen. So villains as an album, you give Jerry Harrison a tremendous amount of either the credit or the blame, depending on how you feel about it. But in terms of the freshman, I, I think that Jack Joseph Puig is probably the guy who, who really made that song happen in terms of the hit making. Yeah. Good point there. Important point about the overall personnel of this. We've already talked a bit about, you know, some of our personal recollections and, and we'll continue that here a little bit, but I do want to talk a little bit more about the uh, band members and then a little bit about the aftermath of villains before we dig into the record. Why don't we go ahead and, and uh, chapter that here with the wonder stories. So just kind of continuing on a little bit here with uh, particularly the the band members. So we kind of talked a little bit about how these guys came together. But as I mentioned previously, the Vander Arks were brothers. And listen, these were like born rock stars. Okay. I mean, Brian was this like rugged, handsome dude who clearly had a tremendous amount of songwriting and vocal talent. His brother, Brad, like looked like a freaking GQ model. Okay. And he had the rock star pose. He played the bass. He had like the Billy Idol lips, you know, while he played this Thunderbird bass. He always looked super cool on stage. I mean, these guys were just there to, to play rock music. And it, and it makes what came after Villains a bit even more interesting, sort of the dynamic between these two brothers. They brought in a new guitar player um, right before their album, Pop Smear. Um, AJ, who was kind of the ultimate like 90s lead guitarist. He had the like chin length uh, brown hair and he wore the oversized sweaters and jeans and he looked cool when he played and, you know, all that. And then Donnie Brown, we mentioned, not as a, not a guy you'd see on a poster, you know, not a, he looked a little bit more like, uh, you know, like your uncle who maybe works at the uh, the bowling alley, you know, across town, something like that. Uh, but was a dynamite drummer, maybe the, you can't really say he's the most important because of Brian, but I would sure as hell say he's the second most important member of this band, as far as what he brought to it from a percussive standpoint. And he also had the most longevity with this band by far for better or for worse. 
uh, along with Brian. He was in the band until 2015. But- and a huge hand in composition. I mean, the Verve Pipe was, you know, a lot of people would assume that it's Brian and Brad because they're brothers. Uh-uh. The, the duo that powered the Verve Pipe was Brian Vanderark and Donnie Brown, for sure. But I think that relationship, too, is something that helps tell the story of what happened to this band in recent times, for sure. You know, because it was a partnership that clearly, when it was on fire, worked really well, but one that obviously the two were not on the same page as, as time went on. It's very true. I mean, Brad, Brad Vander Ark wrote most, co-wrote most of the songs with his brother on I've Suffered a Hen Injury. Really didn't see him write much after that, you know, or get credited with much writing. And, and that really, to your point, shifted to, to Brown. I'm not sure why Brad kind of stopped contributing as much or, you know, maybe he didn't have quite the hand in composition on some of those early songs as his brother did, but they decided to kind of go at it together. I mean, I'm not really sure. It's, it's difficult to find a lot of stuff from Brad Vander Ark. He does not talk about the Verve Pipe very often. He kind of left the band and we'll talk about the circumstances and timing around that in a second. Um, and it seemed like he just wanted to sort of put it behind him, you know, and the way this band dissolved was almost as interesting as the way it formed. I guess they haven't dissolved really because they've continued to, they just put out an album like last year, but in its original form, I think it's fair to say that it didn't take long until kind of the way things unfolded uh, during those couple years after villains for the band to really start to fall apart. Yeah. It, it's, We'll get into more details of it, but a couple of years ago, I went and saw them. They were, and I didn't intentionally go see them. It was at like, uh, I forgot what festival it was, but it was one of those sort of deals at Pine Knob, where, uh, which is the large amphitheater here in Southeast Michigan. And the Verve Pipe played, but it was not the Verve Pipe. You know, he's got like a male and female backup singers and um, a whole different band but still played some of the old school stuff, which was interesting, but yeah, it, the band is unrecognizable now compared to what it was certainly during the time of villains and, and very much so before villains. Well, the band became really unrecognizable in 2009 where they certainly shook up a lot of fans here in Southeastern Michigan. I'm not sure if by that time there was enough of a, you know, national following for it to really cause the ripple effect that I think we uh, saw and felt during that time. But basically what happened after villains is they put out a self-titled record three years later. It didn't do particularly well. It's an okay album. It's got maybe my favorite Verve pipe song ever uh, with a song called hero, which is just an absolutely outstanding track. The rest of the album, you know, not quite as good and it didn't chart well and it wasn't successful. And then two years after that, they put out an album that Brian was really proud of and and pretty excited about called Underneath. To this day, he says that he thinks it's their best record. And it it came out in September of 2001. Just unlucky. Not a good time to release a record. Uh, In fact, it was released on September 18th, a a week after 9-11. So probably bad luck on that one. But an album that again, like its predecessor didn't do very well. Um, They would not put out another rock record for 13 years after that. And so you, you're asking, well, what happened in 2009? Well, the Verve pipe released something called a family album. And we being 
longtime fans in southeastern Michigan really weren't sure what this meant at first until you listen to it and you realize, okay, this is the band. This is Brian. This is Donnie. You can hear it. You can hear it in the harmonies. You can hear it in the playing. You can hear it in everything. But I mean, it was literally a children's album. And listen, Nubs, we're both dads now. You know, we have, we have kids in sort of the high single digit age range. And I I get the whole industry (laughs) all too well and commercial opportunity that exists with kids albums and kids performances. And I mean, I, I mean, I get it. Believe me, it can be extremely lucrative and it could be an extremely good career move, uh, you know, for many. So, so I get it. I'm a dad now. I get it a lot more than I did, you know, a decade ago, but that does not take away from the, the startle of seeing this band that you, you know, saw come up in the early nineties and you know, didn't put out bad albums, kind of lost some of their commercial footing, but you know, was still doing what they do and putting out, you know, pretty good records to now see this band, you know, playing not in concert halls, but in classrooms and, and like singing about like breakfast and like choo-choo trains and shit like that. I mean, it, 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 it was, it was startling. It was weird. And it, it was, you're, you're sort of taken aback by seeing this band that you at one point really were into and really saw going places doing this. I remember the reaction kind of, especially around here being pretty strong. And I don't know, you know, if you talk to those guys today, I mean, it's, it has sort of dissolved. I mean, Brad left the band around this time. I think he wasn't interested in doing this and, you know, AJ left. I mean, you know, it basically became Brian and Donnie's deal and they had kids and they talked about how, you know, they wanted to make music that their kids could, could be into and all that kind of stuff. And they just kind of put the like rock and roll thing aside and decided that this was the direction they wanted to go. Now, why they continue to call it the verve pipe. I'm not really sure. Maybe there was a contractual reason to do that. Maybe they, they thought it would, could just be a, a, a welcomed, you know, sort of brand direction or their, their fans were starting to have kids and they could capitalize on, I mean, I don't really know other than that. It was pretty strange. They eventually got back to making rock records. They made one in 2014, 2017. You know I mean? They've, it's a stretch by the way, to call those rock records. I'm just saying. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't sound anything like, well, it's not kids music is what I'm saying. You know, it's, it's a, it's not the verve pipe doing what the verve pipe has always done, but they weren't chill. They weren't pure children's albums. They were like the verve pipe being adults. Yeah. But you know, T what confuses it even more in some ways is somewhere in that era, Brian Van Dork also put out a solo album, a solo album that actually had, a couple pretty good songs on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. But if you got a band that's sort of your own brainchild, why do you put out a solo album? The only reason you would do that is for financial reasons, because you don't, you're the chief songwriter of this band and you're clearly holding back a couple really strong songs from being verve pipe songs as you sort of find your way to what the next phase is going to be for the verve pipe. Instead, he uses those for solo albums and then they use the verve pipe name to put out a children's record. Yeah. So it, it's very confusing to your point and either mismanaged or fractured 
there's like only two, mm-hmm. you know, ways that this went. They either followed bad advice or things had become quite fractured with relationships in the band, which led to children's albums, solo records, where you don't really need them. And the Verve Pipe coming back together under that name, but making music that was pretty unrecognizable. Do you have a theory on which one it was? I agree with you. I mean, from what you've, I know you were in the industry for a bit as a journalist and that sort of thing. I mean, do you, do you have a theory or, or have you kind of heard what the thinking was there or did they have management that took them in a interesting direction or, or what, what do you think really went down here? I think the band suffered from the same fate that bands like Extreme and Saigon Kick faced, which is that their initial commercial success was completely based on a sound that really wasn't them. Extreme with more than words, Saigon Kick with Love is on the Way. And those bands were never able to recover. As they counted their dollars, right, from the the incredible heights that those particular songs reached, they were never able to recapture their image and their brand. And so you spend a lot of time trying to think more about how to do that versus how to continue letting things happen organically, which is sort of what gotcha onto RCA records in the first place. So I think that was always a thing that the band struggled with this idea that our, a ballad that really doesn't sound like the rest of our album was our first hit. We never did anything close to it from a commercial perspective. And I think that sets you on kind of a tough track. From there, I think you get into the fracturing of relationships. Because by the time the mid to late 2000s roll around, it's not really as much a management piece. Because by that time, they're off of major labels. They're able to have a lot of autonomy. The music industry at that point had turned into much more of a DIY sort of deal, especially for bands like the Verve Pipe. You know, it'd been a while at that point since they had a taste of real commercial success. So at that point, you're not really being like driven by a record label or anything like that. You're able to make your own decisions. And so to me, it reeks more of internal strife, kind of relationships that probably got a little bit hairy. I think it's a combination of their commercial success probably not being what they intended it being. And then that leads to, you know, power struggles and fractured relationships and things like that. And before you know it, you're putting out children's albums. You know, know, we've talked about a bunch of bands here in previous episodes on the old podcast here, Um, whether it's a metal band or a pop group or a rock band or a, I mean, whatever genre it is, there have just been some bands that have really found a way to create longevity. You do not establish longevity just from talent. You don't. You can't write good enough songs for 20 years and just rely on that to create longevity. You, you just can't unless you're, you know, the Beatles or something, right? You've got to be smart. You've got to understand that your operation has to behave as much like a brand as it does a band. You have to realize that, you know, there are ways to evolve, but stay true to what you are. You have to surround yourself with people that give you good advice. You have to kind of keep up with the times of how to promote, how to get people to come to your shows and how to get people to buy your records. I, I think that a couple of things may have happened to the Verve Pipe. The first is that they may have gotten to be pretty complacent. I think Brian's a guy that 
put out two indies and a major label and had a huge hit and had some beloved songs and had some really good songs. And I think he kind of knew it. And when it became time for the follow-up, I think he kind of figured that he wouldn't, didn't have to really put in the work. It was kind of like, I'll snap my fingers and we'll have a few songs on there like hero and maybe a couple others that are good enough. And we'll go from there. We'll be fine. I think there was a little complacency. I think also, and I don't know this for sure, that as intelligent of a composer and songwriter Brian Van Der Ark is, I'm not sure he's particularly smart about the business and about establishing longevity. I, I think he made some bad decisions. Maybe took some bad advice, maybe got kind of caught up in his own talent and figured that that would get him by. And I'm not sure that Brian Van Der Ark was always smart, frankly, in the way that he was you know, continuing to handle the band. So it's a fascinating history before villains. It's perhaps an even more fascinating history after. Um, it's important context on both sides of this 1996 record. But we're here to talk about villains and let's get to it and drop that needle. So kind of shifting back to the mentality here around the release of villains, this band was, you know, if there was a a sort of sports analogy here, this was kind of the next big recruit. The label was excited about the Verve pipe. The Verve pipe knew they had really good material. This was a confident operation and one that I think everybody involved in the villains project probably knew that they had something good. You never know how it's going to shake out. You never know how it's going to land. But this was a band that was very confident, somewhat accomplished, albeit on kind of a smaller level, and was really ready to break. And the front half of this album just reeks of a very confident band that was ready to go and ready to break and ready to catch your attention. They do that right from the beginning here with the track one, which is barely if at all. You know, there are just some openers around this time where the track just really just takes you back and every time I hear barely if at all man it's just like I go right back to that place and I think it's sometimes that can be in a bad way if it feels outdated in this case it's actually in a good way it's a pretty understated opener you know they don't come out and just you know hammer you you know it's something with some groove with some thought really nice octave harmonies on the chorus it's a very, it's just an unmistakably verve pipe middle section, really good chops from Donnie Brown on drums. It's a, it's a, just an extremely verve pipe song around this time. And I think it was a very appropriate way to kind of kick off the record with something that wasn't, you know, it was destined to be more of an album track, but a, but a nice opener. I remember, you know, putting the CD in for the first time and just thinking, God, they made this band sound good. Cause you know, the thing about head injury and pop smear were, the songwriting was there. The production was not. And 
my goodness, does this album sound clean, you know, and top to bottom, it's just such a good sounding album. So yeah. much of that is the drum sound. I mean, the drum sound that Jerry Harrison and Donnie Brown combined to get a lot of that is the playing, you know, drummers have tone just like any other instrument, but, but man, what a drum sound, what a clean, crisp sound. This was perfect for compact disc, perfect for mid nineties radio and barely if it all brings that out, you can pick out a lot of performances uh, from each individual band member and a song that's pretty cohesive. You know, it's got a, a nice riff that it's based around and the verses drop out and create some nice dynamics. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a strong opener for sure. It's, it's an opener that grabs your attention. Like you said, Donnie Brown is outstanding on this album. He is outstanding on this album. I mean, I, you know, I think he shines the most on anybody and that includes Brian, you know, his dynamics on the drums, the big drum sound that you get to your point. I mean, he, it's a it's a really good drum album. I mean, would you you're you're a drummer? I I guess I, instead of just stating that matter of fact, I guess I should you know double check with you. I mean, do you agree <laughs> this is this is a really good you know '90s drummer album? Fantastic drum album. Yeah, his performance on this is very overlooked in terms of you know drumming albums in the '90s. And again, a lot of it's just the sound. But Donnie Brown's got great feel. He's got good power. You ever you you and I saw the band live many times as we've referenced, and you kind of watch him play. You know, yeah. he's a, he's a drummer that you watch. You don't yeah. just kind of feel what he's doing. You actually and he'd visually. swing the microphone over with his drumstick and sing, and then he'd swing it away. I mean, he he was yeah. yeah he was probably the guy that it's a great point. He was probably the guy that you watch the most, and uh, I know that you as a drummer appreciate that. Yeah, no doubt. And, and to your point too, best athlete in the band in terms of like how each of them were at their respective instrument or craft, you know, he easily Donnie Brown was the best Olympian at his instrument, if you will, compared to the others for sure. Great point. Well, that big drum sound takes you right into track two with drive you mild. Great organ. There's some really cool layers there, but God, the, the drums just sound so sweet. I mean, it's it's a drive you mild is is a drummer song. It really is. Now that you got that off rhythm intro, which is really cool. Um, the verses are really kind of the hook to this one, you know, which is kind of cool. I think it's a great track too. Yeah, it's cool how the actual chorus part kind of sits back and allows the verses to drive it, and the middle section and the intro to drive it. It's a song with a lot of uh, a lot of muscle to it, for sure. Brian also did an acoustic-only version of the entire record. This was not long ago; I think it was like three or four years ago, maybe. At the it was actually at the Ark in Ann Arbor, which is an interesting recording. There's some kind of unique takes of of the thing. Obviously, Drive You Mild is kind of an interesting part of that. But when you saw, uh, which we did, we saw the Verve Pipe live on this tour, and there were a lot more people at the show than there were. At the old uh, MSU Arena back in uh, 1993, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and one of the more memorable, uh, I think, uh, moments of that show is the title track in track three with villains.
It's a sweet, sweet vocal by Brian, but probably the best vocal on the album, you know, particularly in the back half when he kind of starts, you know, kind of howling really, really well done. This is a, a song that really builds, you know, it kind of starts off with just a choppy little guitar and a vocal over it. And it just builds and becomes this driving song. Great, great drum part, obviously, from Brown. Definite strong point on the album. Builds is a really, really cool track. No doubt high point, but not one at first listen now. I, I, I did not first hear villains and think, oh, yeah. that's the one. I mean, it totally took agree. a while to understand what was going on. And especially you have to accept the fact that it's the same riff over and over and over again. If you, the song doesn't change from the very beginning of it to the very end of it. It's just the same melody over and over again. But to your point, the dynamics lift up. And the vocal becomes the driving force of the song. And so, yeah, Villains is, is definitely one of the standout tracks. And it created kind of a, uh, a repetition of listener, too, because you had to listen to this song several times to get it. And that's good. You, you want a good album to have that aspect to it. You know, if every song is just easily digestible, then the album almost becomes more of a shallow experience. But it, it gave the album a, a lot of depth. And a reason to keep going back to it. This is one of those tracks that did achieve that. Well said. I am very interested in your take, which, you know, as big of a song as this has been for me over the decades, I, I'm not sure that we've talked about this one a ton. So I'm kind of interested in your take on track four, Reverend Girl. Okay. So, you know, um, I mean, I completely adore this song. I, I have no clue why this wasn't a tremendous hit. You know, they, they released photograph, great song. The, the freshman blew up. I've always wondered why, you know, how, how in the world this thing got through without becoming a huge hit. It may have gotten a little bit of radio play. I'm not sure, but I've been, I've always been good uh, in the last, you know, 30 years at, at sort of guessing the hit. You know, you take your first lap through the album. It's like, okay, this one's going to be the big hit. I got Reverend Girl wrong. I thought it was going to be huge. It's a beautiful song. It's really, really well written. I mean, that, that guitar lick during the verses, it's a pretty haunting song, really, if you, if you think about it. But with, a, a, you know, more of kind of a hooky chorus that really kind of explodes nicely. Great dynamics. Really, really good vocaling. Villains and Reverend Girl uh, are the back-to-back showcase of, of Brian's vocals really cool spacey section in the middle, kind of a section you weren't hearing a lot. You weren't hearing that spacey kind of um, beautifully disorganized kind of thing going on in the middle. You know, back then everything was, was a little bit more minimalist and, you know, a little bit more directional. I love Reverend Girl. I think it's the best song in the album. It's one of my favorite songs from this era and probably a top 25 song of all time for me. Um, what do you think of this one, Nub? I'm interested. Just to answer your question, why wasn't it a bigger hit? It's because it's a waltz. I mean, songs in three, four just aren't radio hits that often. And everything you like about it is perfectly said, but it's a waltz, you know, and it's hard for the common listener to listen to a waltz on the radio and say, oh, that's that's something I can nod my head to. So I, I think that sort of explains just the commercial aspect of it, right? 
I love the background vocals. I think there's lots of cool texture things that are going on. I, I'm certainly not as in love with it as you are. In fact, I, I'm an ominous man guy more than I am a reverend girl guy when you look at this album. Ah, okay. Um, but I see the appeal of it. I think if the song could have been reshaped in 4-4, then you know, maybe it would have had a little bit better chance. But make me a list of all the waltzes that became rock hits, and I'll tell you that it's a very, very short list. And so I would have never guessed it's a top 25 song for you. That's very cool. But yeah, I, 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 I certainly did not see the commercial potential in this one as much as you did from the start. But in, in hindsight, you could certainly make the case that it's one of the better written songs of the album for sure. Yeah, good take. I didn't really think about the waltz thing. That's interesting. Well, this song's certainly not a waltz. Um, obviously, you and I will always remember this one as the opener when we saw them for the first time on Villains and, and distinctly remember the aforementioned swinging of the microphone by Don Brown to catch the vocals uh, during the, the verses and, and pre-chorus sections, which are very, very critical to track five, Cup of Tea. It's just such a wide open chorus. I mean, they're just just opening everything up with a great vocal by Brian over the main lick. It's a really good baseline. You got to give a shout to Brad on this with some of the slide work that's going on up and down the neck. Really nice. Not sure how much of that was him or if, you know, Brian was at this point telling him what to do, but it's a really, really important part of the song is that that bass groove and those slides. It's a very majestic outro. Donnie Brown's just pounding at the outro. I mean, Brian's basically screaming his face off and Donnie's just hammering. He could play hard now. I mean, this guy, he had a lot of intricate touch. He had great groove, but he could really play hard. And that's part of the thing that I really like about his drumming is, you know, he played with a lot of touch. All you, you can listen to his work on the bell. You can listen to some of his kind of offbeat work with both hands. But man, when it, when it came time to pound those toms, I mean, he could do it. He could do it well with a lot of feel. So uh, is track five your cup of tea, Nub? <laughs> it's definitely my cup of tea. It was a very memorable opener. I mean, you and I have been to more shows than, you know, we could forget. And uh, there was something about the way they took the stage. We knew this album was coming out. It was a big deal to go see them in their home state. And uh, it was a really cool moment. Sure. So pause here just for a second. Now, clearly there are some very memorable songs here still to come, but in terms of a nineties rock album, could it be argued that this is one of the top five song runs of nineties rock? I mean, if you look at barely, if at all through a cup of tea, could that be argued? I mean, is there, are there many better kind of five song runs, call it side a, if you want to, whatever that existed during this time. I mean, how strong do you think this is? Cause I think it's incredibly strong, super strong. Yeah. It would be up there. I mean, and honestly, T I would say throw in number six and call it a six song run. And at that point, I don't know that anything matches it, but yeah, it's, it's a really, really dynamic opening to the album. You know, if, if this is the side, if side one concludes with, with myself or, you know, I don't, I don't know how they would have divided this up on vinyl because it never got a vinyl release originally, 
But um, yeah, the first five tracks would stand up as good as any other five track run that we would see in the nineties for sure. I mean, you could easily add the next three and say eight track run. I mean, absolutely. And I, and I, and I almost did, Um, you know, my, myself isn't as renowned of a song by many as, as those first five. So I kind of thought maybe that's the point to sort of cut it off and ask the question, but you know, plenty of people that would say it's not just a five song run. It's, you know, perhaps an eight song run. I T I'm going to say nine. I mean, honestly, I'm going to say nine. Interesting. Well, that's, that's an interesting thought. And why don't we dig into uh, track six myself? Nub, sounds like you like it. Oh, I love myself. If it's not my favorite on the album, it's it's definitely in the top three. It's just so spacey and moody. And, you know, again, Brad Vanderark doing some really cool work on the bass. You know, the middle section is really cool. Brian lifts to a, a really passionate vocal there. And then as you get into the outro, too, you're just looking at a really cool kind of coda that they do at the end. Um, with the myself repetition, you know, it really lifts to something big, a lot of emotion in there, but yeah, I love just the swirling aspect of it. There's a lot of intricacy to the production of the song. This is where Jerry Harrison kind of let talking heads thing comes into play. Yeah. Right. You don't hear a lot of that on this album, but myself is more of an experimental song for sure. But uh, later you get into some of that call and response vocal stuff that you know, the band's been at its best with call and response vocals since I've suffered a head injury. I mean, they, they were yeah. doing that stuff back then. Yeah. Martyr material and those, some of those old songs yeah. all about yep. call and response. Yeah. Perfect example. So, you know, you, you get all of that into this track and again, it's just this big swirling sort of deal with these really blaring guitars. So yeah, I love myself. I think it's, you know, it's a great next step of the album for sure. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a highly memorable album track. Uh, no question. And, and often that's the sign of a really strong album. Here's one that many would consider memorable. We already played a old version of it. So it's for those of us that were there from the early days, this was like version two of track seven, which is the freshman. So upon listening to this, um, you know, recently here for, for the episode, I, I, I didn't realize how stripped down it is. You know, I thought that it was kind of this big, like, I mean, clearly they messed with the tempo. They gave it that sort of, you know, kind of marching, you know, snare beat that kind of keeps it moving. There's the finger picking layering. There's kind of that fuzz guitar. I mean, there, there's plenty going on. But I remember it being something that was very sort of like boisterous and very um, sort of crashing and epic and dramatic. And it really isn't as much and sort of re-listen currently, which is probably a testament to just the song itself that it was able to create 
power and emotion without sort of overdoing it on the production. I thought I was going to listen to it and say, Oh my God, they took the freshman and just like completely overproduced it. But they, they don't really, they didn't really do that as much as I thought, you know, the first time you hear it when you, uh, you know, I know you didn't love the original version, but you certainly knew it. it was certainly ingrained, right? You heard this and you were like, the first reaction for most of us was like, what the effing hell is this? I mean, what, what is this? Like they've really, really screwed with this song. And then it blew up. It blew up and it took a bit. This was not, this did not become a huge hit right away. They released Photograph first. You were able to kind of the, absorb the album. And it was like, have you heard what they did with the freshman? It's pretty wild, huh? And then all of a sudden it just blew up. Part of that is kind of weird for the longtime fans. Part of it's really cool because it's an amazing, you know, stick to it story. You know, it, it was always a favorite and a classic from fans. And then it obviously became a, 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 an enormous mass hit. And I think it's a testament that good songs prevail. You know, I mean, it's just a good song, whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, it is. And the fact that, you know, it became a fan favorite with this stripped down version that was up tempo. And then it became a you know, freaking worldwide hit with this a little bit more epic, a little slower, a little bit more dramatic version. I think it just shows that, you know, you got a good song. You can put whatever dress you want on it and it's going to prevail. Startling as it was for longtime fans because it was this different version and all. It was anything but surprising that the song made it. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a really complicated relationship with this song. I, I actually don't enjoy listening to it. Um, it reminds me of TJ, who, as you had mentioned, we, you know, we lost way too early. And I know he hated this version of it. Yeah, he did. You know, <laughs> he did not like the verve pipe going mainstream. I mean, no. he, he just, he just absolutely hated it. <laughs> oh, it, drove him, it drove him crazy that his, his little secret became everybody's favorite band, you know? Yeah. Um, so I have a really hard time listening to it. I, I, I if I listen to the album in modern times, which is, you know, more frequently you would think I always pass it up. Um, it's a good song. You can't argue it. You're totally right. And um, good songs prevail. You described that very well. I think in terms of what they did with it, you know, first of all, I, I don't, I think Brian sings it in a way that is just really abrasive, you know, and it, it creates a, again, kind of a complicated thing uh, with what the music is trying to do. The whole thing seemed really contrived versus you know, as much as I didn't like the original version of the song, it was still this very organic thing. It was and a we, sweet, it was a sweet yeah, song. It really yeah. was. And yeah. when you hear the version on villains, it's not organic at all. It's heavily produced. And um, you got a lot of things going on there, even though the other simplicity to it, of course, but it, you know, it's still very heavily produced. And in terms of what it did for the band, you know, it was extremely important. I mean, Villains does not go platinum without this song doing what it did. Well, I'm sure if you're forced to listen to it, like you just were for at least a few seconds, because it sounds like you usually flip through it, and that's understandable. But if you're forced to listen to it, knowing what I know about you, I got to think that you really, really love hearing the intro to track eight photograph. <laughs>
Snubs, does Photograph give you a little relief uh, after the, uh, I suppose, complication of the freshman if you are indeed forced to plow through it? Yes, it does. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was very surprised when I first saw the sequence of villains where it sat, you know, because Photograph was the first single and it was like, oh, it's eighth. You know, like it's like in the back half. And you, you, once you hear the album, you kind of get it, you know, how they sequenced it that way. But I, I don't think it helped matters for Photograph that the song was buried in the sequence of the album. You know, typically a lead single is in the first half. It's usually track two or four or whatever, you know. And so um, I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, I remember when I first heard it, it was the keyboard, the synthesizer part is yeah. insanely yeah. cool. Yeah. And when you see the band, you see that they have this additional member who's, you know, plays percussion and keyboards and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so that was cool. You know, I, I always thought the chorus left a little bit to be desired, but the verses were really strong. And I, I think that when the verse lifts into the heavy part of the verse, I think is really, really good. Yeah, there are moments of it that don't, I agree, don't hold up as well. But but all in all, it's a it's a really good song. Great single, you know, and, and a good choice, ideal choice for uh, this to be the first release off the record. Now I'm I'm looking forward to getting to track nine because you've already kind of mentioned a couple times that this is one that uh, that you're fond of, and I'm interested in that. This is Ominous Man. Now you'll you'll have to help me with this one a little bit because you know I, I've always found I think that you know the back half of this record's interesting. It's gonna be interesting to kind of plow through here. But Ominous Man to me, you know, is pretty draggy. It's got some dynamics, but I think it could have used more. You know, the drums kind of stay the same. I think I think Donnie could have done more to. He was certainly good enough and clever enough to I think find ways to create a few more you know, dynamics, whether it was, you know, hard playing, soft playing, you know, different parts, incorporating different touch moves and all those things that he could do really well. I feel like I've always felt like Ominous Man just had the right idea, which just needed maybe a little bit more layering, some more sort of memorable elements. It's got great direction, but to to me, it it was always a little bit flat. Good song. I am not, you know, I'm not throwing this one in the garbage. This This is definitely a good song, but I think it's one that could have been phenomenal had they sort of treated it right. But, uh, but you know, you like track nine, it sounds like. Yeah, it's the mood shifts. You know, it has this major key verse and Brian singing sort of flowery on top of it. And then those, the chorus section is so minor key. It's so moody. I mean, it just sinks into this, like, this sort of agony within it. But it's all about the outro. You know, when it gets into the outro and the I am the ominous man, and again, the background vocals. I mean, this song is all Vanderarks. It's Brian's right. singing and guitars, and then it's Brad on the bass doing some really cool bass licks. This is definitely one where the, you know, the drums would take a step back and allow everything else to lift. But that outro is insanely powerful. Track 10 is sub two minutes. This is called Real. So why? 
So I used to kind of think that this was to use your term dumb rock. When you when you listen to it start to finish and kind of revisit it, there's some cool stuff going on. I think they could have done a lot more with it. It's a it's again, it's a, a little bit like Ominous Man. It's a strong idea. Maybe it should have been acapella. Maybe it should have been acoustic. I mean, I, I, I think it was a little bit thoughtless to kind of just have it be this driving rock song. No, I mean, come on, it's 1996. That's easy to say now, but it felt to me of something that they sort of, it was more safe than thoughtful. It's kind of like, let's just, you know, blare the guitars and get the drums rocking and, you know, uh, and we'll just kind of make this a little bit of a, of a driving number. I think it happened a lot on the back half of this album where it got to be a little bit expected, a little bit safe rather than kind of going out on a limb dynamically or, or from sort of sort of a thoughtfulness or instrumentation standpoint. It, it, I've never understood that, that, like that, that right there is the most coherent capturing of what this song <laughs> is that I, you know, that I could ever imagine. Cause I've never understood it. First of all, the album could have came to a close at the end of ominous man and been like <laughs> one of the greatest albums of the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It really could have stopped there. And that's a problem when, when bands started writing for compact disc was, you know, you went from a very limited set of songs and having to be really choosy about what fits on one disc versus basically the ability to fit, you know, 70 minutes of music onto a disc. And that really opened up a lot of possibilities. And the problem with that is it opened up a lot of possibilities. So I don't really get real and I don't really understand the direction that the album goes in really from this point forward, you know, I think there's kind of one strong track left, but it just feels very incomplete. The, the song is void of really any emotion. And one thing you could say about the first nine songs is there was a, a certain depth, you know, and a certain yeah. passion behind it. And yeah, this is the first moment where it feels like they're going through the motions. And, and I don't know why, you know, do they have to fill a certain amount of tracks or what, but it, it, it it's never made sense to me. It still doesn't. Yeah, I got to agree on all fronts there. I, I do think they could have done something with it, but they they certainly didn't in this one minute and 50 second uh, throwaway many would consider. But you know, still some interesting stuff there if you really kind of dig into it and listen to it. Track 11, Penny is Poison. Now, to me, this song probably aged as poorly as any on the album, right? This is this just screams kind of like you're in the 90s. And and I think there are moments on this record and on a lot of different great records from the area from the era where that's a good thing. Here, it's kind of a bad thing. You know, it's kind of like, boy, we're we're stuck in 1996. And and you can really tell sometimes the Verve Pipe had a hard time getting out of that rut. Now, it's got a cool organ solo there. You know, I mean, but but it's it still feels safe. It still feels more of the same. It still feels like something that, you know, maybe had some elements that they could have created something more memorable or something that aged better. Uh, but to me, Penny's Poison just really failed to do so. And they always insisted on playing this song live. You know, like every... Oh, verb did they? Bite, <laughs> yeah, every Verbite show I went to is like, now we're going to play, you know, this next song is Penny is Poison. I'm like, damn it. Like, you know, and it never really pulled off well live either. I mean, it's just... This just always reminds me of like the ultimate beer song at a Verve Pipe show. It's like, yeah, you know, even though we were not old enough to go buy a beer yet, trust me, I would have wanted to. (laughs) 
well, you know, beer is important. I mean, you get, you, know, you get it. Even sometimes the best shows contain a beer song. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and man. That's okay. Track 12, we're kind of getting to the end here. This is Cattle. All right. Well, you know, I just talked about the song that I think aged the most poorly. I think cattle might age the best. You got dynamics, right? This is not, this, this doesn't sound like, let's just do the same old thing. You got the piano piece. It's not trying to do too much, but it's a very original sound. I, I think that cattle is sort of what the previous three songs should have tried to do. It's got great drumming. And it's, it's, it's an unexpected song. You're not, you get through at least, I, you know, on Relis and I got through cattle. And I was like the, the previous three songs to me is sort of like, yeah, okay. I, you know, that's, that's very verve pipe. That's very what you'd think you'd hear. This is a quality album cut here. Second to last one on the album that, that I really like. And, you know, upon Relis and it was dynamic. It sounded original. I think it held up great. What do you think? I agree with all that. Yeah. I like it. It, it uh, do you remember on Pop Smear, the song Victoria? Yeah, sure. Kind of has that same vibe to it. Kind of that mid-tempo thing with some interesting dynamics that lead to chorus and get you into verse and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think it's well done. And it has aged well. And if there's any track on Villains that I hadn't been listening to regularly in the last, you know, however many years, 20 plus years since this album came out, this would be the one where I thought, oh, that one, that one is good. Yeah, that one does stand out as kind of a overlooked album track from this record. So yeah, yeah props yeah. to the band for putting something late in the album that, you know, had a little bit of longevity to it. But I think you, you captured it perfectly the way you described it. Let's close it up. This, uh, this is Veneer track 13. Another one here, I think that on re-listen, it's, it's a very appropriate closer. It, it's good. I think it's got the nice atmosphere uh, as far as kind of an outro piece that wraps up the album nicely. I really think that the phaser gets a little distracting and some of those things that you hear at the very end there, but you know, th- this sort of drawn out sort of more epic uh, outro piece and I think they kind of made it work. I mean, it's not like an amazing song or anything or, or, or incredibly memorable, but you know, you listen to it and you say, well, they closed it up pretty good. I mean, with cattle and veneer, it's not making your head spin by any means, but I think it was a better two track way to put a bow on this record than maybe we realized at the time. So I, I don't know if you agree, but those are kind of my initial thoughts on how we close this one up here with veneer. Yeah, I agree with all that. It's super nineties. like. Let's end the album with a <laughs> six minute track with a lot of yaz in it. Sure. You know, just, sure. It's definitely representing its time. It should be more epic. It should lift into something much more grand and dramatic. I think if it was truly going to reach its peak and it really doesn't, you know, it, it's a certain pinnacle and then kind of, 
you know, goes from there. Um, I think they could have done something with the melody of the song that really created a truly memorable and kind of stunning closer. You know, it, it doesn't do that though, but yeah, sure. I mean, I think that between this and cattle, I think you hear a couple of things in there that were nice reminders of what this band could do aside from hits, but you know, nothing that even touches what you hear on most of those, you know, first several tracks. That's villains. That's our little local legend band here in Southeastern Michigan. When they made it big for that, I guess rather brief time period, but for you nubs, did this one matter? I think it definitely matters to those of us who, you know, grew up in Michigan in the nineties. It does. It's local boys done good. You and I had a very unique experience with this band, you know, whether it be the connection with TJ and going to see them before they signed their deal and then seeing them right after they signed their deal and before the album came out and then watching the rise and watching the fall and being confused by certain things that's happened with this band <laughs> since, you know, I, I do think that it, it's almost impossible for you and I to say whether this matters or not, because it's so regional to us and it's so personal. I do think the album should be revisited. I would love to see a good reissue of it. Mm. You know, it'd be nice to see it be remastered for vinyl or something where, you know, a new generation of listener could at least have the access to check it out because there's some really strong moments on it. I did forget how quintessentially 90s this album is <laughs> in every way, in the way that it sounds sonically to the songwriting, to the content even to the sleeve packaging and design. And I mean, it's all, it's just very, very nineties. So I would like to see it revisited in a way that could reintroduce it because I think there's some songs on here that deserve a look. So, you know, I, I think it matters to those who it's personal for. I don't think it matters to, you know, somebody in Omaha, Nebraska, who has never heard of this band, I don't think they're going to pick it up and be. They've got 311 as their uh, right. local yeah. legend. Right. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> and so, Matthew yeah. Sweet as well. Yeah. That's right. That's right. As we discussed previously, <laughs> right? You got it. So, what do you think, T? Do you think Villains Matters? I mean, I think you captured it perfectly. I don't really have a lot to add to what you said. It's, um, you know, uh, I do think it's a really strong 90s album, you know, and, and if you're looking for one that, probably in a good way represents the era. You know, we talked about our lady piece clumsy and, you know, we, we've kind of gone in, in this era before of late nineties kind of, you know, um, straightforward stripped down rock. It, it would be one to revisit. You know, if, if, uh, if someday, you know, our kids said, you know, well, what's a rock album from the sort of like when you were in high school, like late nineties time period that, that really, uh, you know, it sort of distinguishes the era well and gives you a flavor for the era well, villains would be high on the list. So, you know, I think even if you get outside of kind of the hometowny thing that, that certainly we feel for it, I think it matters a little bit in that I, I do think it's one that a lot of people are going to, when they're looking for something nostalgic to represent the era, I think they're going to go in the direction of villains. I mean, there's plenty of high points and plenty of ways where um, it does sort of represent that. I mean, in the grand scheme, you don't hear it talked about as a classic. You don't hear it acclaimed quite as, you know, often as, as some others, but I agree with you, a reissue treatment or something like that may help it 
if not earn that status, you can kind of get a sense for where it's at. Um, because right now it's, it's a little unknown, you know, you bring it up and people kind of say, Oh yeah. Or if they think through it, or if they hear a couple of those, particularly those front half cuts, they're like, yeah, this album really was good, but it's not top of mind for a lot of people in the same way that a lot of others are. And I don't know if that's because they're seen as a one hit wonder. They're more of a band that you giggle about rather than one that you sort of took very seriously, but you plow through villains and you realize that there's a lot of good stuff going on there. So let's get to the final cut here. Uh, is this one on the turntable? Is this in the collection? Is this collecting the dust? Or are you putting this into the for sale bin? What do you got, buddy? Let's hear it. I like your little French flair. On this well, thing, you know, you know I like I, that. I, it's completely irrelevant I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know what it had to do with anything but there you go so what do you got now it's making me think more about jim morrison's grave you know this kind of yeah, pierre lachesse yeah. yeah oh you mean we went there we saw yeah, that right? I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't recall a yeah. couple times a couple times uh for me it's collecting dust and it not as much about you know a lot of times we use that classification to make some sort of comment about the the completeness of the album like oh i can listen to some of the tracks on my phone or whatever it's not really that it's just the the period piece aspect of it it's just you know how much am i really saying man i really want to hear villains today now every time i do or anytime one of these songs of which i have several on playlists that pop up i love hearing them they never get old and i i think they're you know excellent but just as an album, it's certainly not for sale bin because there's too many good songs on it to put in the for sale bin. But to say that it's it's in the collection would signify that it's some sort of essential or part of the canon. And I, I just wouldn't go that far. It wasn't an easy rating to come up with. I'll tell you that. See, where, where, where do you got it? I agree with you. Not an easy one. I'm going in the collection. The front half is just too good. I mean, you, you, you know, you can't, yeah. you can't even downgrade it to collecting dust because it's just too strong. Now there's a big hole in the album, I think in the second half, but when you revisit it and you listen to cattle and veneer, it's, you know, it works. I mean, it, it, it it's a, it's, it's a better bookend than I think we realized at the time. I, I don't really like the the three songs that precede it, but listen, you got 13 tracks and if like 10 of them are really, really strong, which is the case, you got to go in the collection. That's just, it's very difficult at that time to be that efficient with 13 songs. And, and I think you're right. It, it should have been 10 to, to go 13 songs and still create the efficiency that they were able to, and still create the sustained strength, right? It's not up and down. It's not a, it's not a volatile album. It's one that has a great run. And then has goodness and then takes a little bit of a dive and then finishes pretty strong, stronger than I think we realized at the time. So in the collection, certainly there's just too much strength and there's just too much uh, sustained performance, I think on this record to be anything, but all right, well, let's go with a little bit of in your what? Oh, oh, okay. Nubs, what's in your head, buddy? In my head would be, uh, do you know Minus the Bear, T? Is that a band you've ever gotten into? I have heard of them. I have never really, uh, I haven't really absorbed that one yet, Dick. <laughs> a terrific band. I think you should try because uh, 
really good. They're they're defunct. They're no longer around, but they had a really strong, maybe decade long run. And off their last album, Voids, a song called Tame Beasts, just an exceptional song, you know, big sound and kind of proggy, kind of poppy, really, really cool stuff. Next would be uh, one of the 80s Billy Joel songs that I really like, which is An Innocent Man. And I'm pretty picky Mm. about my 80s Billy Joel. Yeah. But I love An Innocent Man. I just love the verses with the finger snaps and then, you know, kind of the drama behind the chorus and everything. I, I just think it's a really, really well done interesting 80s 80s billy joel can go real bad now i mean keep that it could go real south in a hurry but that's a standout for me and the last would be uh a song by devin townsend project off of the addicted album which is super crush which is yeah great one still one of dev's best uh, live tracks as well so. oh that that one I, I i love that um it's only like six songs he's playing an open air festival whacking yeah, Wacken, Wacken, yeah. Wacken, yeah. Oh man, he comes out during the day and just plays this killer set. I think he opens with Super he Crush. He opens with Super Crush and it just nails. Oh, it's great. That is a really, I'll tell you what, if whether you like all of Devin's stuff or not, because sometimes he can get a little out there. If you want to see him just doing what he does and just balling, just freaking balling out there at a metal festival cue that clip up it is really really outstanding and it's tight it's tight and he closes with life i mean it's just it's a it's a i probably don't let a month go by without you know putting that on when i'm going to bed or whatever maybe yeah it's an awesome clip for sure all right tia what is in your head couple tracks here the first you mentioned this band actually during the episode this is extreme off of the uh, three sites every story record am i ever going to change you know i think it's probably I don't know there's a lot of good songs on that record. It's probably my favorite. I know, think toward, it's the best. Yeah. Yeah. Toward yeah. the end of the album, you know, so uh, good stuff there from a record. I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about that one someday. That's a, that's a pretty intriguing record. The next one is uh, by a little band. I don't know. Maybe you've heard of called Genesis and uh, they've got a long piece on invisible touch called Domino, which Ooh, yes. is like, it's 11 minutes long, but it goes by so fast. Cause it's just so good, man. I love that. I love the front half, which is, you know, kind of that, that little bit more mid tempo piece with just kind of the, you know, tambourine percussion kind of pulling you through it. And then when things pick up with that electronic drum beat and oh man, I just, I, I think Domino's just awesome, you know? And uh, the last one, uh, just going to go with the, Great song from the 80s uh, by this band called King. I, I don't know anything about them. It's called Love and Pride. Yeah, Love and Pride. Yeah. yeah. Kind, of a, kind of a goofy, really good 80s song. I think I first heard it uh, at an Umphreys McGee show. They were playing the intro music, you know, uh, sort of uh, during set break and heard Love and Pride. I was like, what is this? This is great. You know, so uh, kind of a great song for the Carlton dance. You know, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. I think that's yeah. on our uh, our infamous intermission mix as well. Um, yeah, I love Love and Pride. That's yeah, King. Man, what a band. King. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, no, man, I, really, really fun to talk about this band and in this time period for us. And I mean, obviously, a, a personal thing, certainly for us, but hopefully, you know, you all enjoyed it um, just from the standpoint of maybe an album that you hadn't thought about in a while or, or maybe you weren't uh, fully aware of kind of how these guys came up. Here in uh, here in the mitten, uh, for those of you that also grew up here, uh, maybe uh, a little bit before their time or a little bit after their time, but when you were in kind of the heat of it, the Verve Pipe, uh, you know, a very memorable, very kind of infamous local legend band that you know at least for a short time period made it big. I enjoyed talking uh, about them with you, buddy, and revisiting that whole thing. Really enjoyed talking about the Verve Pipe dude, and uh, it was 
fun to revisit the, the, the songs in the album, but you know, even more enjoyable to visit the time and, and to uh, think about, you know, one of our dear friends who, uh, who really connected us with this band and, you know, no, no matter what music always takes you back to a place, you know, and, and that's one of the great things about it is the context of the times can often be captured in a song or an album that you, uh, that, you know, that was important to you at the time. So, so I appreciate you making that connection as well, for sure. Well said, that is a wrap on episode 28, or as the French would say, Von Huit, I think. Yeah, well, you, you took French in, uh, in high school and college, so you better know that, buddy. I did, but these days, uh, I'm only really good at my French when I'm drunk. <laughs> so I don't know why I even tried it just then. I probably got it wrong. But uh, 28, uh, regardless, we will see you very soon for episode 29 here on Two Twins and an album. Two Twins. <laughs> That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.